Our sermon text comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw what their, that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing this series um, uh, kind of on the heels of our Deuteronomy series, looking at uh, how Jesus uh, executes three, the three particular offices that were set up in Deuteronomy for the governing of God's people. Um, and those offices are prophet, priest, and king. Uh, in the law, those were generally not supposed to be the same people. Priest and king especially were not ever supposed to be the same people. Uh, but Jesus, uh, we say, embodies and executes all three of these offices himself. He is anointed. Part of what it means that he is the Christ or the Messiah, which are the same word in Hebrew and Greek, uh, that he is anointed, which is what it means, to each of these three offices. He is anointed as our prophet, he is anointed as our priest, and he's anointed as our king. Um, and we're continuing uh, this series now, uh, wrapping it up, with looking at Jesus uh, as our king and what kind of king he is. Um, it's uh, very appropriate and, and timely um, that Tim and Alice Colgrove are currently teaching a class uh, for our adult education uh, at 9.30 on Sundays uh, titled Cruciform Justice, that is uh, justice that is shaped by the cross of Jesus. Um, and I'm not going to be able to get into a lot of what they're getting into, but they're, uh, it's really great, and I totally recommend that everybody go to that. Um, what they're looking at really is what it practically means uh, for us to have a king uh, like Jesus, what the work of Jesus as a king means for us and how we interact in the world. Um, so uh, I highly recommend uh, uh, that as many of us as can attend that, and if not, uh, try to find it online when, when we get the audio files up. Um, Jesus as the king may be the most interesting of the three, maybe the most surprising of the three. Uh, the way that Jesus works as a king um, is very different from what we expect from earthly kings. In many ways, it's the opposite of what we expect from earthly kings. Um, 
Several of us from uh, this congregation were in a play a couple of weeks ago. My daughter Hada was in it, I was in it, Manny and Ariel and Melissa and Gianna, and I'm probably leaving somebody out, uh, but they were, that's everybody. Uh, we were all in it. There were a bunch of other people from other Christ the King congregations in it, um, and it was a Dorothy Sayers play uh, called Kings in Judea, and it was about... Uh, it was about King Herod, largely. Herod is the, the main character. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a very interesting take on Herod. It really humanizes him. Um, maybe we'll have a video of that at some point. If you missed it, you could see. Um, but the thing that was the most fascinating to me about this play, I mean, Dorothy Sayers is sharp. Um, she has the three kings, the three wise men, uh, each sort of take under their wing or take as their particular um, interest each of these three offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. That's not explicit in the play, but if you look at each one of the, it, what each one of them cares about, um, one of them cares a whole lot about uh, Jesus' message, the message that he's going to have, the wisdom that he's going to have. One of them cares a whole lot about uh, how he's going to, uh, so that would be the prophet, uh, uh, office of prophet. One of them cares a whole lot about how Jesus is going to um, uh, care for uh, the sorrowful and intercede for them. Um, and that would be the office of priest. And one of them cares a whole lot about how Jesus is going to govern. Um, and that's the office of king. And Melissa played that, uh, played that wise man. Uh, and she had uh, a, one of his lines that I thought really summed that up really well. But Herod sets up the problem, and then this wise man answered it, answers it. So in the, near the beginning of the play, Herod says this. The wise men tell Herod that Jesus is going to rule by love. He's going to rule by love. And Herod scoffs. Herod says in this play, you cannot rule men by love. You cannot rule men by love. He says, when you find your king, tell him so. Only three things will govern people. Fear, greed, and the promise of security. Do I not know it? Have I not loved? I have been a stern ruler, dreaded and hated. Yet my country is prosperous and her borders are at peace. This is King Heritage. We tend to think of him as a, as a mustache-twirling villain. But he's, what he's telling us here is true. Herod did bring peace and prosperity to a very volatile part of the world. And he did it with an iron fist. He's, he goes on, he says, But wherever I loved, I found treachery. My wife, my children, my brother, all of them, all of them. Love is a traitor. It has betrayed me. It betrays all kings. It will betray your Christ. Give him that message from Herod. I even say it is compelling. It's tough to argue with. That is exactly what happened in Herod's life. And that is what happens in the life. Like, man, man, read the biographies of some kings. Read the histories of, of, uh, of the kings of Europe. Read Shakespeare's plays. Love, love is not an effective tool for ruling. Power is. Fear is. Greed is. Lust for security is. Love is not a very effective tool for ruling people. People are, uh, are uh, self-seeking and rebellious, and treachery is always around the corner. 
And so Melchior, the king, the, the magi that Melissa played, says this later to Mary when they're finally meeting Jesus. Melchior says, we are rulers, and we see that what men need most is good government with freedom and order. But order puts fetters on freedom, and freedom rebels against order so that love and power are always at war together. Catch that? This is, I mean, Dorothy Sayers wrote this, I think, in the 50s. So the political landscape of the world has not changed a whole lot since then, but it hasn't changed a whole lot throughout history. This is always the problem. You go back to ancient Greece and the cycle that they had from democracies to tyrannies around and around and around. Freedom rebels against order. Order puts fetters on freedom. How can these two things coexist? How can we give good government with both of these things um, you know, we, we as a, in our country, as a democratic republic, we're balancing those two things as best we can, but it is a balancing act. We haven't solved the problem with a democratic republic. We're just doing our best to, to balance them. This, this uh, wise man goes on, he says, so the riddle that torments the world is this. Shall power and love dwell together at last when the promised kingdom comes? When the promised kingdom comes, can power and love finally dwell together? And what they're saying, what Dorothy Sayers is saying, what these wise men are saying in this play, is what the scriptures are saying, that Jesus answers that riddle. Jesus as a king gives us an answer to the riddle that torments the world. Can power and love dwell together when the promised kingdom comes, when the kingdom of our God and of our Christ comes? Can power and love finally dwell together? So we're looking at David today in 1 Samuel 17 because he shows us something uh, very important about who Jesus is as a king, what kind of king Jesus is, the way that Jesus operates as a king. David is, is foreshadowing Jesus in this passage and showing us something very important about it. But we also have to realize as we read this and, and think through it that G uh, David is not Jesus. He cannot ultimately do what we need Jesus to do as a king. You look at the life of David, and in the life of David, power and love did not dwell together. For a time, he manages, for in, in certain ways he manages, but look at his whole life. This is a man who abuses his power in some gross ways. This is a man who, in fact, if you remember the story of Bathsheba, abuses his power in order to get love. Uh, you think that the stuff in the news is new. It's not. Uh, so David is not Jesus, but he is showing us something about who Jesus is as a king. So uh, what we look at when we're talking about Jesus as the king, uh, our uh, church's catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, sums up what we consider to be the work of Christ as king. It says this, how does Christ execute the office of king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. That's one. Two, in ruling and defending us. 
and three, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. There's three things that we would say Jesus does as a king. He subdues us to himself, he rules and defends us, and he restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. So what David shows us about how Jesus, uh, about Jesus uh, primarily here is how Jesus conquers his and our enemies. And so that's where we're going to begin. So take a look at this, uh, at this chapter. Uh, and the first thing, you know, this was 58 verses long, so we, don't want to have you, we didn't want to read the whole thing. Um, but we wanted to read, I, w- I really wanted to emphasize the part about just how threatening Goliath is. Uh, you know, you may not uh, be a Christian, and you may not be very familiar with the Bible, but I have a suspicion that you've heard this story. Um, even if you haven't heard this story, you've heard this story. Um, you've heard this story echoed in, in movie after movie and book after book where some little guy goes up against some big guy and wins a surprising victory. Uh, it's become a catchphrase. A day, it's a, boy, that was a real David and Goliath story about this little tiny business that, that managed to, to defeat Walmart in some town or something like that. Uh, in that, you know, Walmart being Goliath and this little business being uh, David. Or, you know, the, you think movies like Aaron Brockovich where, uh, you know, she is this single mom, uh, almost single-handedly takes on this giant law firm and wins. It's, David and Gol- it's a David and Goliath story. Um, so Goliath is big and scary, and the people that he represents are big and scary. The Philistine invaders are a frightening enemy. The Israelites have been dealing with uh, the Philistines for generations. They have superior technology. They have uh, chariots. There's a good chance they had better metallurgy, stronger weapons, better bronze. And they're threatening them with slavery and death. They're invading the Israelite territory. And what they're saying is, we want, we want to make you our slaves. And we're going to kill you in order to do that. We're going to kill you if you don't submit to us. But not only is this invader here and the, with their superior weapons, you have a giant on the field. Nine foot six, 140 pounds of bronze and iron armor. Spears, swords, shields, helmets, chain mail, actually probably plate mail. Uh, And, you know, the Philistines seem really confident in him, too. Like, he's not just a scare tactic. Uh, If he was just a scare tactic, they wouldn't be sending him out day after day for 40 days. They seem to be really hoping that somebody is going to take this challenge. Uh, I mean, and, and the, the, the reason behind this, by the way, is you've got these two armies. They're facing uh, off against each other on two mountains over a valley. Which, whichever army goes into that valley first becomes really vulnerable and is going to lose. So neither of them is going down in. They both know that they can't win by doing that, so they're stuck. They're at a standoff, uh, you know, like the Germans and the French uh, in World War I with no man's land in between them. Whoever goes over the, over the top gets killed. We're not going down into that valley. So what do we do to break the deadlock? We're going to send out a champion. And the Philistines send out this champion who taunts and taunts and taunts. And he is huge and he is strong and he is frightening. And no one has taken it. No one is going down. The Philistines have, seem to be 
putting all of their chips on this. They don't seem to have another plan. It's not like they're using Goliath to distract so they can go around. Goliath really is this strong. He really is this scary. And when Goliath does, a spoiler alert, when Goliath does fall, uh, the Philistines respond in terror. Like, they see that their giant has just been killed, uh, and they run. So Goliath is scary, and he deserves the fear uh, that they are affording him. And you add to that these insults and talks and taunts. And I got to tell you, uh, I, have, I, I was a small kid, and I had a big brother. And I want to say, there is no worse trash talk than trash talk that is backed up by action. If trash talk is empty, it's fun. You can roll with it, you can laugh at it. But if the person who's doing the trash talking, you know that they can do what they're saying they can do, and they will do what they're saying they can do. I mean, uh, there's some stories about Larry Bird. Apparently, Larry Bird was an incredible trash talker. And I got to imagine that being trash talked by Larry Bird in, in, his, in the day of his power <laughs> was probably really frustrating. Because Larry Bird could just do, like he would, he would I've seen videos of, of, of NBA players talking about Larry Bird trash talking them, and then he would do exactly what he said he would do. He would tell them, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bounce the ball this way, I'm going to run around this way, and then I'm going to fade this way, and I'm going to shoot the shot and sink it over three points. And, and then he'd be like, and then he would do it. And it's so infuriating. And here's Goliath defying the armies of, the, uh, of Israel and backing it up with nine foot six of power and 140 pounds of armor. The whole army is afraid of him. Saul himself is afraid of him. Saul isn't <laughs> the king, who, by the way, himself, the Bible says in earlier chapters, was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. So big guy himself. Uh, the king hears these taunts, and he does not say, all right, time to pony up. Time to defend my people. Nope. He puts the price on his head. He tries to use his kingly power to get somebody else to do it because Saul is scared too. So, the historical purpose of this story is exactly that. It's to show why David, the person who wrote this in the first place, uh, the person who put this as part of the history of Israel, they put it in there because they wanted to show just exactly why David was a superior king to Saul. Uh, and the reason that ultimately this story gives, that David is a superior king to Saul, is that David trusts God. David has faith in the Lord. Um, it's not because, like, Saul was probably six foot six in the day when the average height was five foot five. It's not because he's bigger than Saul. It's not because he's a better warrior than Saul, although he turns out to be a better warrior than Saul. But the reason that this story is giving is that David trusts the Lord and takes seriously the call to defend the people of God. So David shows up on the scene here, and he hears Goliath's taunts, and he's the first person in the story to recognize that the person that Goliath is really insulting is God himself. 
right? Goliath says, I defy the armies of Israel. And David says, look at verse 26. He says, and he repeats this again, uh, but look at verse 26. Uh, David says that Goliath defies the armies of the living God. The insult is, the, is against the Lord. And David knows that the Lord is going to take care of his reputation. David knows that this cannot stand. You can insult me, David seems to be saying. You can insult my people, but do not insult the Lord. So David volunteers. He volunteers to attack Goliath with faith, with faith and confidence that God will decisively help him win. So let's take a look at this real quick. Uh, look at verse 31, and we're going to read a couple of, uh, couple of verses here. So when the words that David spoke were heard, this is he's talking about like, oh, I'm going to, I could take care of this guy. When the words uh, that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. That's Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go out against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. You're an adolescent. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a, a lamb for the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And, he, uh, and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Um, and if you've heard this story before, you probably remember that Saul tries to give David his own armor. David isn't used to this kind of armor. He says, no, I'm not going to use this. Um, and skip down to verse 41. David goes down uh, with just his uh, shepherd's pouch with five stones in it his sling, and his staff. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. With a, and, the, and the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Um, the significance here, the main thrust, is that David's confidence is that God is going to strengthen him. God is whatever, whatever weapons David brings, whatever David does, however this turns out, is going to be because God accomplished it for him, through him, toward him, on his behalf. 
So David has faith. Now let me quickly say about faith. Uh, you are a uh, not yet fully developed young man. You know, he's a teenager, I think is probably the implication of youth. Um, you've never fought a battle in your life except for wild animals. And without any armor, just a shepherd's tools, you're going to go down and fight a nine foot six experienced warrior with 140 pounds of armor. All because you think God's going to help you. That sounds stupid. Uh, is faith stupidity? I think if you're not a person of faith, if you account yourself a skeptic, uh, you probably say, yeah, that sounds really stupid, and faith sounds like stupidity. Faith, like as Mark Twain has said, I've quoted him before, uh, Mark Twain says, faith is deciding to believe a thing you know ain't so. You know that you ain't big enough to fight a nine-foot-six giant, and faith is deciding to believe that you can, even though you know you can't. I mean, does he have a point? So Saul is right. David is just a youth, and Goliath is a gigantic, experienced warrior. And Goliath really does have all that armor. And David really is going out there looking very, very, very vulnerable. Very soft. Very small. But I, uh, the key point here is that faith is not blind. I think that's the thing that we miss very easily in our day. Faith is not blind. David's faith here is not blind. Look at how David reasons. Yes, I said he reasons. How does he reason that he can defeat Goliath? He reasons. Does he say, I know I can win because I feel it in my heart? No. Does he say, I know I can win because my mom and dad are Christians? No. Does he say, I know I can win because I felt a tingly feeling when I was at the youth retreat when I was 15, and so I just know God is real? No. Does he say, I know I can win because when I went on that mission trip when I was 20, I came back as a better person? No. All of those things are good things. And all of those things can confirm you in your faith and they can strengthen you in your faith. But they cannot give you faith. And they are not faith. Don't confuse them. That is not what faith is. What is faith? Faith is David looking at history, seeing what God has done that he is empirically confirmed and so he knows something about who God is based on that he gives concrete reasons for his confidence God has delivered him from the paw of the lion God has delivered him from the paw of the bear therefore God will deliver him from the hand of the giant David is appealing to history Brothers and sisters and friends, do not base any decision about God or anything like that based only on your internal feelings. Base them on what you can confirm in history. What has happened in history that you can cling to and base it, because that is what will sustain you. That, like your, the tingly feeling you had when you were 15 is not going to sustain you. I hope it won't. I hope, I hope that you don't rely on it. It won't help you. Knowing the facts of what God has done in history will. 
So how did David win? And what do we learn about who Jesus is as a king by how he won? David won with a weapon called a sling. Uh, you know, in case you're confused, right, it's not like those rubber band slingshots. It's not a wrist rocket, okay? A sling would be a, a, a length of probably braided hemp, probably as long as your wingspan, as long as your fingers from, from tip to tip, probably about that long. Doubled over with a pouch at the middle. You can hold it a particular way, loop it around your finger, and put a stone in it and whip it around seven, eight revolutions a second and hurl that stone between 30 and 100 meters per second. Uh, you know, a, a, a missile of about 30 grams at that speed is deadly. Um, I uh, saw a trauma surgeon talking about this who said that uh, 3,000 newtons of pressure, it's a measurement of pressure, uh, over an area of about two square inches, or, or sorry, four square inches, so two inches squared, which is this area kind of between the bridge of your nose and your forehead, which is about what would have been exposed by Goliath's helmet. Really, his whole face was exposed. But if you hit right there with 3,000 newtons of pressure, it would cause fatal brain damage, probably instantly. Uh, the champion... Uh, slinger in the world today was able to hit a target mounted nine feet high with 3,600 newtons, uh, enough to kill. This is not a surprise that Goliath died from this blow. It is not a surprise that a sling was able to kill him. Um, in Judges Chapter 20, it, it, verse 16, it describes, you know, they're, they're gathering an army for some other purpose. It's another story. But in the talking about gathering that army, it says that they gathered 700 left-handed slingers who were able to hit a hair. Now, maybe that's hyperbole. But it says that they could, left-handed, swing a sling, throw a stone, and hit a hair and not miss. Uh, it's an accurate weapon. It's a powerful weapon. Um, there's medieval tapestries that show uh, slingers hitting birds in flight. Um, they say that, I, I've read that, that stones from slings could cause fatal internal injuries to the, a person's uh, torso through leather armor and even sometimes through metal armor. They could hit that hard, enough that a soldier could be killed, even with their armor on. It's also a humble weapon. It's cheap to make. The ammunition is cheap. It's unimpressive to look at. It's a poor man's weapon. It's a shepherd's weapon. Goliath would never have expected this. He might even have been able, he might not even have been able to see it. Right? He says, when he sees David coming, he says, you're coming at me with sticks? He doesn't say, you're coming at me with sticks and stones, or you're coming at me with sticks and a sling. I mean, and, and how, maybe he could, like, why would he be able to see it? Here you got this kid running at you. You see the stick. The, if he's holding the sling at all, it would be maybe down like this, maybe dragging. It's small. It's the same color as the grass. He might not have noticed it at all until it hits him in the eyes. If Goliath had lived, I suspect uh, 
He might have said that David cheated. You brought artillery. You know, David brought a gun to a knife fight. That's how he won. It's like, the, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones, the swordsman, he starts swinging the sword. Is that ever a big, big battle fight, flight scene? Great scene. Guy comes at him with a big, big guy comes at Indiana Jones with a big sword, starts swinging it around, and Harrison Ford kind of just like, ugh, it's this exhausted sigh, and just pulls out his revolver and shoots him. And it's funny. I mean, as funny as murder can be, I guess. You know, that's what David did here. You don't, maybe you don't want to overplay it. This is a very, very tough shot. And the risk that David was taking was incredible. Um, if he had missed on that first shot, it would have been over. Because now Goliath knows that it's there. Uh, and now he can have his shield up. Uh, he can change his tactic. If, he had, if it had pinged off his helmet, if he had missed at all, uh, Goliath would have torn him to pieces. Um, it's a very, very tough shot. That champion uh, slinger that I was telling you about in the video of him trying to do this, he misses the first several. This is a world champion. He misses this shot the first few times uh, and then finally hits. Um, but David won when he put aside his royal armor and impressive-looking weapons. He won when he offered himself as bait. He won when he made himself incredibly vulnerable. He came out into the open, exposed and weak against an extremely powerful and dangerous enemy. But he used a weapon that that enemy could not possibly foresee. Jesus conquered an enemy greater than Goliath. The greater enemy. When... uh, you know, what were the Philistines going to do? What was the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario, that they're going to just kill them. That's the worst case scenario, is that the Philistines would kill the Israelites, enslave them, and if not that, then kill them. That's the worst thing that they could do. Um, so good thing that David saved them all, right? And so they're all still alive today. They're not, they're, they're dead. Just, even though David did this, they're still just as dead 3,000 years later. You know, David didn't save them. David prolonged their lives. All That's all David could do. Because the real enemy eventually caught up with them anyway. The real enemy was death. And death eventually caught up with each and every one of those people anyway. Maybe some of them lived another five or six decades, but today they're just as dead. And Goliath and the Philistines... They're all dead too. Death was their enemy and our enemy still. But let me read you uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore, this is talking about Jesus, since therefore the, uh, for the children, that's us, the children of God share in flesh and blood He himself, Jesus himself, likewise, partook of the same things. That is, flesh and blood. Jesus took, God took part in flesh and blood because we take part in flesh and blood. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What the Philistines wanted to do, they wanted to enslave them and kill them. And what Jesus has done is he became weak like us. He put aside his royal armor and impressive looking weapons. He offered himself as bait. He made himself incredibly vulnerable. He came out into the open, exposed and weak against that extremely powerful enemy. And he used a weapon that the enemy could not possibly foresee. Death could not possibly foresee that God would use death itself to defeat death. And this is, this is a point at which analogies begin to defy me and escape me. How do you make an analogy for this? That God, by embracing death, destroys death. It's like, because he was a human being, he was able to be taken by death, swallowed by death. But because he was God, death couldn't hold him down. And it's like he destroys death from the inside out, having been swallowed. Or it's like uh, Tinkerbell drinking the poison uh, to save Peter Pan. Jesus drank all of the death. There's no more left. He drank it to the dregs. He emptied the cup. There's no more death for us to drink. And this is, of course, something that David could never do. Christ, our King, executes his office by defending us, ruling us, and conquering his enemy and ours, and that is death itself, and the one who holds the power of death. The thing that holds us in slavery, fear of death, is now eviscerated, weakened taken away. And there's one more thing that David could never do. And for that, let's look just really, really briefly at King Saul. We already said Saul should have been the one to face Goliath, but he was a coward. He was too concerned with his own life, too concerned with his own glory, too concerned with his own reputation, too concerned with preserving his own kingdom. David appealed to things that God had done in, in his own life. He saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He'll save me from this Philistine. Saul could have appealed to similar things from his own life or, or even just things from the history of Israel. God has defended us from the Philistines in the, through Samson and through Shamgar and through other enemies, through Gideon and Deborah. Uh, God defended us, delivered us from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Saul should have remembered those things. That it, the God who did that then is still with us. But Saul did not have that faith. Saul didn't have that trust. He was too focused on himself, too focused on his own glory, too cowardly. We see from chapter 15, if you read back, Saul didn't trust God's instructions. He didn't trust God's promises. And because of Saul's disobedience and lack of faith, God had already told him that he wasn't going to be king anymore. And you look back at chapter 16, you see that David had already been anointed king. And I think that helps explain why David was so eager when he got there. He heard this and was like, you know what? Uh, Samuel came and told me that I'm supposed to be the next king. The current king isn't taking care of business. I guess I ought to. This is my job. No one else. Saul was too afraid. 
And David does this. David reveals himself as a courageous warrior, full of faith. Saul begins this love-hate relationship with Jesus. Saul begins this love-hate relationship with David. Uh, He goes back and forth throughout his life, but he spends most of his time, most of the rest of his life, resisting the promised kingship of David. David serves Saul faithfully. He leads his armies to victory. He leads Saul's armies to victory after victory. Even when Saul begins to hate him and betrays him, and as Logan was uh, preaching a couple of weeks ago, talking about the, the command, thou shalt not kill. Uh, Saul begins to betray David, is trying to kill him, and at some point David even has Saul in a vulnerable place and could kill him and no one would know. And he doesn't do it. David is loyal to Saul and loves Saul and loves Saul's family, loves Saul's son. And for all of that, he cannot win Saul's heart. He can't get Saul to love him. He can't get Saul to submit to his kingship. He can't make him do it. He does everything that he possibly could, anything that any human being above and beyond what any human being could do, and Saul cannot make David cannot make Saul love him. If there's somebody for us to identify in this story, it is Saul. Like Saul, God has made us. He has given us authority. He has given us his image. He has conquered death for us. Our way always leads to pain. His way always leads to joy in life. But we continue over and over and over to resist his authority. We want to be in charge, just like Saul. We don't want to give up our throne, our crown, our little fiefdom, our little kingdom of bang and blab. We don't want to let him be king. We want to be the kings and queens of our own lives, masters of our fates, captains of our souls. David could not make Saul love him. But Jesus executes the office of king, first of all, as the Catechism says, first of all, by subduing us to himself. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't force us to love him, but he lovingly and persistently shows us who he is, opens our eyes, and when we see him, we come to love him. And when we see him more and more, we come to love him more and more and want him to rule over us more and more and want to submit ourselves to his authority more and more. And that is how power and love come to live together in the promised kingdom of Christ.